Welcome, foolish mortals, to GGDN, a companion podcast to my blog, Gay Goth Dungeon Master. I'm your host, Non Serwian. Welcome back, listeners. Today we are continuing in my series of examining the examples of play in the various editions of Dungeons and Dragons. And as promised, today we are looking at first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Once again, I'd like to start with a little bit of history, although I really doubt much history is necessary as this is actually one of the most recognizable and famous editions of the game. Uh, It's the one that really started, I don't know, launching it into popularity. It's the the one where uh, during the 80s, the the profile of the game really started to take off. Um, Obviously, the current edition of the game is colloquially referred to as 5th edition. If you look carefully on your rule books, you'll notice that it never actually declares itself the 5th edition of the game. Um, we just know that the previous edition was 4th edition, so we start, we all started calling it 5th edition, and Wizards of the Coast never protested or bothered to correct us, so it's unofficially known as 5th edition, but it isn't officially 5th edition. Um, and this is 1st edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, as most of us know, it's not the actual first edition of the game. That would be zero edition or the white box or OD&D or whatever you want to call it. Um, some relevant history. This is the first edition of the game completely written by Gary Gygax. Um, as, as original D&D kind of grew and expanded with, first of all, the supplements that were added to the boxed set over the years and all of the material that was released in first the Strategic Review and later Dragon Magazine, you know, the game became, ended up being a lot more cumbersome than it, uh, it was when it first came out in 1974. And I, I think you can see lots of trends and rules mechanics um developing over time uh the the three little brown booklets the first ever edition of uh dungeons and dragons is notable for resolving quite a lot of uh game and quite a lot of actions through d6 rules um obviously attack rules and saving throws are on a d20 um, almost everything else is ruled in a d6, whether it's a check for wandering monsters, listening at the door, looking for a secret door, triggering a trap, um, trying to burst through a stuck door, whatever, it's all resolved on a d6. Um, from the Greyhawk supplement, you start getting, well, you get the thief class and all the thief skills are resolved on percentile dice. You also get the fighter rolling percentile dice to see if they have exceptional strength if they happen to get an 18 on their strength. Um, Later on, there would be things like rolling under your ability score on a d20. Um, So as uh, as new ways of using dice to resolve uh, actions that have a potential to fail became, I don't know, known to, to Gary Gygax... 
it must have occurred to him at some point that the game wasn't consistent in how its mechanics worked. And I think that and a lot of other things are, are issues that he tried to tackle when he completely revised the game into Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, he also added a, a lot more uh, precision, I guess, and complexity in rules, especially in combat. Um, the rules for combat are are pretty cumbersome compared to OD&D and to basic D&D. Um, the idea of doing combat rounds in segments, like further dividing them into segments and thinking of your initiative die roll as the segment of the round that your opponent gets to act on and things like that. Uh, it's a level of complexity that I reckon a lot of people could do without. Even the the thing like not being able to use your shield bonus to AC if you're being attacked from the right flank or from behind, it makes sense because you can't reach your shield over in that direction or in those directions. Um, so it's a good rule in terms of realism and simulationism, but it's another thing to remember. Like now you have to remember the position of the enemy and things like that. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about AD and D and um, I think it's a great game but it's probably more rules than I I personally want to deal with. Um, so probably the most interesting thing about first edition uh, is that it wasn't released all at once. Um, it was released over a number of years as Gary Gygax worked pretty much on his own to complete uh, complete the rule books. So the first one that came out was actually the Monster Manual which came out all the way back in 1977, um, just around the time or a little bit before uh, the Holmes Basic boxed set uh, was going to come out. And as you remember from last time, the Holmes Basic rules are constantly referring to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, trying to present itself as an introduction to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. But if you if you had that box set when it first came out, there was no Advanced Dungeons & Dragons apart from the Monster Manual, which would contain, you know, all the stats for the monsters, but since they looked very different than how stats for monsters had looked in either Holmes Basic or in OD&D, it might have been, you might have been at a loss to interpret it correctly. Then the Player's Handbook came out a year later in 1978, you might think then you can start playing the game, and you mostly could, but not quite, because the player's handbook in first edition left out two very important uh, bits of information, and on purpose. Gary Gygax obviously thought this was information the players didn't need to have. It did not tell you how to generate your stats. It said your DM will tell you how to generate your stats, but of course the Dungeon Master's Guide wasn't out yet, so I guess if you were DMing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons using only the player handbook, you'd either have to make up your own method or use the only really known method at the time, which was rolling 3d6 down the line. Ironically, when the Dungeon Master's Guide did come out, method one was the familiar roll 4d6, drop the lowest, and put the scores anywhere you like. So anybody who was rolling up an AD&D character before the Dungeon Master's Guide came out was probably getting screwed a little bit. The other thing is it included no attack tables. So 
technically, you didn't even know how to make an attack roll. I mean, if you were starting with AD&D, if you'd never played D&D before at all, if you were coming to AD&D cold, you might not even know how to make an attack roll. You would know that your strength score gave you a bonus to your attack roll and your damage roll. And you would know the damage that your weapon did, but you probably you wouldn't necessarily know that you need to roll a d20. And even if you did, you wouldn't know how high you had to roll to hit a given armor class. That table was in the Dungeon Master's Guide, so the players weren't meant to know whether they hit or missed. It's uh, It seems strange to me, this idea, because I'm used to... well. Obviously, in the days of the the D20 system with ascending armor class, everybody knows what armor class they hit. They roll their D20, add their bonuses, and that's the AC. Um, But even for people who maybe played a lot of uh, second edition where they knew their FACO, you know, you would would at least then know the, the, the minimum armor class you hit each time you rolled. Um, so the idea that, you know, a player is going to roll their D20 and then just tell them the total number and the DM will then tell them whether they hit and the player will really have no way of confirming that. That seems pretty strange to me. It's certainly strange compared to the way most groups play today, whether they're playing an old school edition or, uh, or the, the current edition. Um, so you couldn't really call the game complete until 1979 when the Dungeon Master's Guide was finally published. And uh, there's a lot of love for the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, the, the AD&D first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. To this day, people think that even if you don't run this game, that it's got a lot of valuable information and advice. And it certainly does, especially considering that you don't have to use all this advice. Um, I personally find the chapter on the dice mechanics and on like the the bell curves that you get when rolling multiple dice i found that really enlightening um and yeah there's just a lot of of good ideas on how to handle certain situations that are applicable to lots of other games and lots of other editions but now let's get to the task at hand and go into the example of play this is found in the dungeon master's guide so again it's something that uh gary gygax either it just took him a long time to write it or he thought that this was more relevant to dungeon masters and not to players that it was the dungeon master who needed to know what a session of D might look like and the players i guess would just find out by being there and playing um there's something that this particular example of play does that uh had such an impression on me that i actually went back and double-checked to make sure that the other two, the previous two, didn't do the same thing. And they didn't. So this example of play comes in the section, A Sample Dungeon. I mean, A Sample Dungeon is nothing new. The uh, the first, uh, so the, the little, the white box had a sample dungeon in it. I mean, not a very usable one. And in fact, it, it made it clear that it wasn't usable. Some of the comments on it are like, your players will not be very happy if you reproduce this exactly because it was kind of too hard. It wasn't really meant to inspire you with the kind of tricks that you could use. And the uh, sample dungeon in Holmes Basic is actually renowned for being one of the best sample dungeons ever made, the Tower of Xenopus. Um, so 
It's no surprise that there would be a sample dungeon in the Dungeon Master's Guide for First Edition AD&D because obviously Gary Gygax wants you, the Dungeon Master, to know the basics for how to make your own dungeon. So we have, you know, we have a key with the scale giving the usual one square equals 10 feet. Uh, we've got the symbols for stairs and trap doors and locked doors and all those things. We've got a wandering monster table, which is actually specific to this sample dungeon. And then we have uh, the keyed sections, which are called monastery cellars and secret crypts. So now we know this dungeon is not only just a bunch of uh, drawings on graph paper, it's actually got a theme. Um, and then after that, we get the, the dungeon map itself, which seems to have about 39 areas based on the numbering and based on the key. So they only give uh, four, I think, keyed areas. Actually, only three, because uh, number four just says etc. in parentheses. So he was not ever intending to fill out all 39 areas, although he does show you them via a map. But if you read the key areas and, and compare them to the map and get an idea for the layout of at least those first three sections, you can then use the example of play to follow along with a fake party that is going through this very dungeon. And this is what really impressed me. The idea that he sets up this sample dungeon, allows you to read it, and then the example of play is taking you through that dungeon so that you can kind of follow along and get a really good idea of how you would run people through this dungeon. And of course, you can you can see how Gary Gygax anticipated a party would deal with those very challenges. So I'm going to uh, read the keyed sections and then we're going to read the uh, the actual example of play. So area one is uh, just basically a uh, 30 by 30 square room. It's uh, got four exits. One of them is the stairs down where you enter the, the dungeon. And then, then there's a, a passage on either side and a passage dead ahead. Uh, so we've got, yeah, west, east and south because you're coming from the north. The stairs are leading down from the north and you're facing south. Uh, the center of that room on the map is marked 1A and there's an area marked B in the uh, northeast corner. So it will be the bottom left of the map. Actually, that's the southeast corner. My apologies. There is also an area C, which is uh, down the uh, the west uh corridor um ending at uh the symbol of a door which is a, a door that will lead into area two so that's area one c so we can read the descriptions now one entry chamber a damp and vaulted chamber 30 foot square and arched to a 20 foot high center roof arches begin at eight feet and meet at a domed peak Walls are cut stone block, floors rough, thick webs hide ceiling, C, A, and B below. 
Uh, notice <clears throat> no flowery language, no boxed text. A. Large spider. AC8, move six inches. Uh, asterisk, 15 inches. Um, one of the peculiarities of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, one that I, uh, I don't personally appreciate, but you do have to just deal with it, is that <clears throat> distances are given in inches um, rather than in feet or squares. <clears throat> they refer to one inch of space on a board, um, on a, a, a battle area. This actually goes all the way back to the wargaming roots of Dungeons & Dragons, where you set up like a sand table and you, uh, you measured out how far your units could move by measuring out actual inches on the sand table and giving them the scale. Um, in this case, an inch equals 10 feet. So the spider can move 60 feet. Um, I'm not going to look up its actual stat block in the monster manual, but I believe the asterisk refers to a special type of movement. And in this case, it would be in its webs. It can move 15 feet. Or possibly it's the jump. Some spiders can jump. Um, that'd be 150 feet, actually. Sorry, not 15 feet. Hit dice, 1 plus 1. So that's 1d8 plus 1. But it gives in uh, round brackets or parentheses for you Americans uh, hit points of 6. There are also 9 1 HP young spiders hiding in the upper part of the webs. This monster lurks directly over a central litter of husks, skin, bones, and its own castings, awaiting new victims to drop upon. It will always attack by surprise unless the web it is in, the webs it is in are burned, which will do 3 hit points of damage to the spider and kill the young. Mm -hmm. So that'll you'll take off half of its hit points if you think to burn the webs first and all the baby spiders will die. There are 19 silver pieces in the litter on the ground while a goblin skull there has a 50 gold piece garnet inside which will only be noticed if the skull is picked up and examined. Notice <clears throat> that there's no skill check or anything, no dice roll required to find that gold that to find that garnet. All you have to do is tell the DM that you're looking inside the skull. This is a, a, a really common old school way of running the game where you reward the players for their stated actions, not for their die rolls. Um, you don't say, I roll to investigate and then hope they roll high. They have to pay attention and give you details. They have to pay attention to your details and then give you details about how they're interacting with the world. And that's when you reward them. This is something you can do even in fifth edition. You don't have to resolve everything with a skill check. B. Rotting sacks. <clears throat> there are ten moldy sacks of flour and grain stacked here. Remember, this is the southeast corner, or southwest corner. The cloth is easily torn to reveal the contents. If all of them are opened and searched, there is a 25% probability that the last will have yellow mold in it. Uh, this is a pretty common thing that Gary puts in, where he gives you a percentage chance of something will happen, will happen, and assumes that you're going to roll percentile dice um, behind the screen. I think Gary Gygax really liked percentile dice. Um, you find it in a lot of his content. Um, for example, if you read things like the 
village of Hamlet and stuff like that. A lot of things are given as percentage probabilities. So, and handling it will automatically cause it to burst, and all within 10 feet must save versus poison or die in one turn. He does specify with room descriptions and things like this. He does use feet, but character and monster movement rates are still given in inches. Uh, notice that this is a save or die. So you're supposed to look through things to find treasure. Like looking through the goblin skull is going to reward you. Looking through the sacks here, you might die. It's not a high chance of death. Because first of all, there's only a 25% chance that there is yellow mold in it. And then you still get a saving throw. Um, you also, it takes one turn. That's 10 minutes of game time. So it's possible that if somebody has some sort of poison antidote or protection from poison spell or something else like that, that can save you, you might still not die, but there's a chance. And notice there's no treasure. You, you just might find yellow mold and die. Area C, so this is the door that I described earlier. A heavy oak door with bronze hardware is remarkable only in that if any character listens at it, he or she will detect a moaning, which will rise and then fade away. Unbeknownst to listeners, it is the strong breeze which goes through Area 2. Now, this is in all caps. As soon as this door is opened, a wind gust will extinguish torches and be 50% likely to blow out lanterns as well. Wow, my players are always bringing lanterns into the dungeon because they don't want gusts of wind to blow the torches out and also because they last longer. And they can be doused easily and then relit. So I like this detail that even people with the foresight of bringing lanterns are potentially going to be plunged into darkness. And this in an edition of game where in the game where it is far less likely that players will have the ability to see in the dark. <clears throat> the wind continues to make the corridor impossible for torches until the door is shut. So you're not going to get your torches relit until you shut that door. Now, area two. So this is beyond area 1C. Um, we have here a cavern with uh, a stream running through it. It pools slightly into a pond at the southern edge. It runs along sort of the, the west side of the of the cavern. The pool where it pools is marked B, and then at the very bottom of the room is marked area A. So two, water room. This natural cavern was roughly worked to enlarge it. Torches cannot be lit. When the monastery was functioning, the place was filled with casks and barrels and buckets, but now only eight rotting barrels remain, location A. So that's down at the bottom. And there are three buckets scattered about. Several of the barrels hold water. They were new and being soaked to make them tight. So nothing but water in the barrels. Area B, however, has a long description. B, the limed-over skeleton of the abbot. Remember, this is a monastery or a formal mo former monastery. is in this pool of water, but it appears to be merely a somewhat unusual mineral formation. Clutched in the bony fingers is the special key, which will allow the secret door at location 28 to open to the treasury room 29, rather than to the steps which lead down to the cavern, steps down at 30. 
If the remains are disturbed in any way, a cylindrical object will be noticed, the thing being dislodged from where it lay by the skeleton and the current of the stream carrying it south downstream at six inches speed. So now I guess because we have a movement rate, it's once again given it inches, but that's 60 feet. Um, I guess 60 feet per round. To retrieve it, a character must be in the stream and score to hit as if it were AC4 in order to catch it. That's an interesting way to resolve this. Uh, I mean, at this early stage of the game, not every single way to resolve every single action was explicated in the rules, so you often could just make up how you want to resolve it on your own. If I were personally doing it, I might do the ability score check, like make them roll under their decks, or maybe even make them roll initiative, um, possibly individual initiative, and I would give it a, a, an initiative roll to the cylindrical object. And if the player wins initiative, then they can move first and possibly catch it. However, okay, it is a watertight ivory tube with a vellum map of the whole level inside. However, slow seepage has made all but a small portion blur and run into ruin. The map shows only areas 1, 2, the passage to 3, a smudge where 3 is, and the passage to 24. About 20 feet south of the secret door leading from 3 to 24. The latter being shown with a min with miniature sarcophagi drawn in the 80 foot feet or so not water soaked and ruined so at first it looks like you have a small chance of getting a map of the level imagine what players would do with that but then it's like oh, it doesn't show the whole level anymore because it's been waterlogged um gary giveth and he taketh away let's see um stream this is cold and fast flowing it is five feet to seven feet wide and three feet to five feet deep. It enters the north from a passage, which it fills entirely, and it exits to the south in the same manner. So you're not gonna be able to get along the stream very easily. And if you look at the map, nothing's drawn beyond where the stream enters and exits. So it's not the designed intention that you try to swim through the stream mm -hmm. to another section. Um, at five feet deep, it could be tricky for halflings. Pool. The pool is about 10 feet long and 15 feet wide. It's about 4 feet deep at its edge and 7 feet deep in the center. So way too big for a halfling and even for a player character, a, a non-small player character. There is a score or so of small white blind fish in it and under the rocks are some crayfish similarly blind and white. And finally, area 3 which, uh, so if you take from area one, if you take the south passage, um, it leads to a large room marked three, and there is a secret door in the south wall um, in the exact middle. But this wall is going to be tricky to find, as we'll find out now. Empty ceremonial chamber. This large place appears to be a dead end. It has a roof it has roof support similar to chamber one, but the vaulted ceiling dome here is fully 25 feet high. When the monastery was functioning, the faithful were brought here after death, consecrated, and then carried to their final resting place by the silent monks after the mourners left. A wooden platform, supposedly merely a dais for ceremony and religious rites, was placed against the south wall. This platform being nine feet off the ground, 
enabled the use of the secret door in the south wall, this portal being eight and a half feet wide, ten feet high, and ten feet above the ground, ten feet above the floor of the chamber. Amongst the seven small protruding knobs of stone, about nine and a half feet above the floor, the seventh pushes in pushes into the tr to trigger the door mechanism and the portal will swing inward it swings east with a grinding noise the only clue which still remains are socket holes in the south wall there are two at the 20 foot and two at the 30 foot line that is on either side of the centermost 10 foot south wall space each pair has one socket at about four feet high one at about eight feet each socket is a half a foot by a half a foot square and a little deeper. The first socket hole examined by the party will have several splinters of wood, the platform, of course, which might prove to be another clue to thinking players. So I guess, again, you're going to have to give them these details and they're going to have to decide whether they think, you know, anything, whether they think those details are significant. And if possible, they can try to climb up the wall and reach the secret door, which is 10 foot above the floor level. So that's a weird place to put a secret door. So, uh, that description, uh, then follows some more advice, uh, with, uh, so advice of how to adjudicate common actions that players might take. And then we get this paragraph. With these basic points in mind, let us return to the action of the first dungeon adventure. Assuming that the abandoned monastery is merely a burned-out shell with nothing but rubble and ruin within, the players spend only a few minutes of real time looking around, and that's in uh, uh, quotation marks, before they discover a refuse-strewn flight of steep and worn stone stairs leading downward. This reminds me of descriptions of how you might find your the entrance to your first dungeon in OD&D, and also to what Gary Gygax apparently really designed for the dungeons beneath the ruins of Castle Greyhawk, that there was a ruin, and you could spend some fruitless game minutes uh, examining the, um, the the ruins above ground, but after after a while, whenever he decided that was long enough, you'd find the staircase leading down into the dungeon proper. So, aha, exclaims the leader of the group. This must be the entrance to the dungeons. That's our first bit of dialogue. We'll find what we are looking for there. And what are they looking for? Well, treasure. Uh, in, this, in this early stage of D&D, the only th reason the characters are adventuring is to get treasure. Uh, they're, they're not trying to defeat evil or rescue people. They're looking for loot. And why not? Loot is going to give them XP, which is how they're going to level up. So they're actually looking to increase their own personal power. The other players voice agreement, and so the real adventure begins. What is said by the dungeon master will be prefaced by the letters DM, while the party of player characters will be prefaced by either LC for leader or OC for any of the other characters speaking. So once again, we're not going to go into too much detail, apparently, about um, character class and stuff like that. DM, what are you going to do now? LC, light our torches and go down the steps. DM, fine, but I'll need the marching order you will be in. And then in round brackets or parentheses, at this point the players either write down the names of characters with each in its respective rank or place their painted miniature figures in actual formation. 
as minimum width is about three and a half, three and a third foot per character. A five foot wide corridor requires single file. A ten foot wide passage means up to three may be abreast, and up to six abreast can move down a twenty foot wide passageway. And then uh, that's the closing of the round brackets. And we get back to the direct quote. Please note what formation you will take in a five foot wide passage and what your marching order will be in a 20 foot wide area also. <clears throat> he doesn't ask them to give the 10 foot wide passage, which is actually the most common passage width in old school D&D. LC, after a brief discussion with the other players, here is the formation on this sheet of note paper. We'll change it only if one one of us is wounded, lost, or killed. Well, that's um, some good business there. DM, why are the gnome and the halfling in the front rank and the magic user in the middle and the human fighter and cleric in the rear? LC, that way all five of us can act when we encounter an enemy. The magic user can cast spells over the heads of the short characters in front and the pair in the back rank can do likewise, or fire missiles, or whatever is needed, including a quick move to the front. So, that's good strategy. Um, I mean, one of my first thoughts was, they're not doing the kind of uh, armor uh, sandwich thing that people tend to do now, where they put the most heavily armored character in front, the second most heavily armored character in the rear, and then all the squishies in the middle. However, one thing AD&D always makes clear is that you can attack from uh, the back rank So um, in melee, so it actually isn't a bad strategy, this. And they've clearly justified it, um, so, they've been, so they're not just doing it randomly. They have some thoughts to how this is going to help them if combat breaks out. DM, nodding agreement. You remember that the torches will spoil the infravisual capabilities of the gnome and the halfling, don't you? I wonder if this is how Gary Gygax actually spoke during game. Infravisual capabilities. LC, certainly, but the humans must be able to see. We will go down the stairs now with weapons drawn and ready. So two things here. Um, infravision, which is the only way that characters could see in the dark in this uh, in old school D&D was not very useful. You could only use it if everybody in the party had it because if one person couldn't see in the dark they'd have to light a torch and the torch spoils in provision for everybody else so now everybody is using the torch. I guess the only advantage if, is if the torch blows out the people who can still see in the dark can help they won't be totally helpless um, if there's some fighting to be done, and um, they can probably help relight the torch because they can still see. But it's not, it's not great. Um, <clears throat> also, because it's the because of the race restrictions on certain classes, almost guaranteed somebody is going to be a human, and they're gonna need, uh, they're gonna need a torch. Um, it's. The cleric, I think, has to be human, and it's still pretty likely that other characters are going to be human, too. So most people, like, torch is blowing out or your torch is burning out after uh, six turns is a real thing. So, oh, the other thing is their weapons are drawn and ready. Um... I think that, again, like I've mentioned before, I think they they specify that because I think some DMs, especially Gary Gygax, would make them lose a round of combat drawing their weapons. 
So if their weapons are ready, then they can attack right away if they win initiative. They don't have to spend one whole combat round getting their weapons out. DM, you descend southward, possibly 30 feet laterally, and at the end of the stairway you see an open space. Elsie, enter the area and look around. DM, you are in a chamber about 30 feet across to the south and 30 feet wide east and west. There are 10 foot wide passageways to the left and right and ahead, each in the center of their respective walls. Uh, this description, by the way, would really help if somebody's making a map on their own gra graph paper while this is ha happening. The stairway you descended likewise enters the chamber in the center of the north wall. So with those descriptions, the mapper can probably make a pretty accurate map. LC. What else do we see? DM. The floor is damp and rough. There are arches supporting the ceiling, starting from a spot about 8 foot above the floor and meeting about 20 feet foot height in the central dome of the place. It is difficult to tell because the whole ceiling is covered with webs. Possibly old cobwebs. Oh yes, there are some moldering sacks in the southwest corner and some rubbish jumbled in the center of the floor, which appears to be dirt, old leather, rotting cloth, and possibly sticks or bones or something similar. So, the uh, lead character asked for more detail beyond just the dimensions of the room, and the DM gave him those those details now it's the character's job or the player's job to decide which of those details they want to interact with the lead character uh and then in round brackets it says a confused babble breaks out at this point with players suggesting all sorts of different actions the leader cautions them and tries for a careful reasoned methodical approach and round bracket so i guess this is illustrating how the caller works um if you remember old school DD often specifies one player as the caller who's the one who's actually supposed to tell the dm what all the party members are doing rather than letting everybody say what they're doing themselves and i guess this is the purpose of the caller is it makes it means that everybody's not shouting random stuff at once so the lead character says the gnome and the halfling will hand their torches to the fighter me and the cleric they will then look down the east and west passages while I check the one straight ahead to the south. The cleric will check the sacks, and the magic user will examine the pile of refuse in the center of the chamber. Everyone agree? Other character. Sure, says the player with the cleric character. I'm moving over to the sacks now, sticking close to the left-hand wall. I like how he's not only saying where he's going, but specifying the route. That way, you know... He can avoid pit traps and stuff, unless the pit traps are against the wall. DM, what are the rest of you doing? As indicated, tell me how you are doing it, please. Oh man, whenever the DM says that, I get nervous. If you need to know how you're doing it, it means that there's something dangerous. Then uh, in, in round brackets it says, If miniature figures in a floor plan are being used, each player can simply move his or her figurine to show root of movement and final position. Otherwise, each player must describe actions just as the cleric character player did above. Um, that's cool, specifying how you do this if you're using a grid. And also singling out the cleric's uh, choices as best practice. Elsie, they are now in position. What is seen and what happens? I, I find that people don't really use the passive voice a lot when they're just speaking. DM, 
Just as the three are about in position to look down the passages, and while the cleric is heading for the rotting bags, the magic user cries out, and you see something black and nasty looking upon her shoulder. Elsie, everybody quick, see what's attacked her. Then, turning to the referee, we rush over to help kill whatever has attacked her. What do we see? DM, a large spider has surprised her. As she went to examine the refuse, it dropped from its web, landed on her back and bit her. Before you can take any action, she must make a saving throw with plus two on her die, of course. And then she and the spider must dice for initiative and fight a round of combat. After that, the rest can try to do something. Other character, the magic user. A 16, did I make it? This said as she rolls the die to make the required saving throw against the spider's poison. DM, yes, easily, so you take only one hit point of damage. While you mark it down, I'll roll for the spider's initiative. B to three. Again, the magic user. A five, if that means I can act before the spider does, I'll grab it and throw it on the floor and stamp on it with my boot. Oh, uh, that's cool. Um, I love I love in this early version of the game how people aren't always using their character's primary attack routine or function she doesn't want to cast a spell at the stupid spider she's just like well it's just a normal size spider i'll just step on it dm roll a d20 and we'll see if you hit the die score indicates that the magic user would hit an opponent of the armor class of the large spider so the dm states you grab the spider but as you do so you are now allowing the monster to attack you even though you had the initiative and it bites your hand as you hurl it to the floor ouch I don't remember that rule in the combat. Uh, in round brackets, it says, amidst groans of horrified anticipation from the players, the DM rolls a d20, but the low number which results indicates a clean miss by the arachnid. Yug, the nasty thing misses you, and it's, it is now scuttling along the floor where you tossed it. The lead character, who is nearest to the spider? Whomever it is will smash it with a weapon. DM. It was hurled down to the southwest and is now heading for the wall there to climb back onto its web overhead. The cleric is nearest to it. OC. The cleric, of course. I squash the nasty thing with my mace. And here the player, having already gained savoir faire, rolls a d20 to see if his strike is successful. Uh, 20, and a beaming player shouts, I got it! Uh, notice how I mentioned earlier that these players presumably wouldn't know what they need to hit various ACs, but they do know that a natural 20 is an automatic hit no matter what the AC. Uh, so they do know at least that much. Um, find savoir faire in the rules. DM, you're right, and you do. And then round brackets. With these six words, or with these words, the DM rolls a D6 to determine the amount of damage. Six points. Ooh, max damage. Unless there's some kind of uh, strength bonus involved there. That's heavy. Heavy enough to kill it, in fact. It is smashed to pieces. We may remember from the room description that the spider only had six hit points. What now? LC. Everybody will do what we set out to do in the first place. If nothing valuable or interesting is in the sacks, the cleric will then help the magic user search the refuse and burn the webs overhead in case there are any more spiders hiding up there. And we know there are baby spiders. They weren't given combat stats, so they may not be dangerous, but I guess we might as well kill them. DM. The sacks hold rotten grain, so the cleric will go and help the magic user as ordered. I guess that 25% chance of yellow mold didn't come up. 
They find the refuse consists of castings, some husks of small victims of the spider, hide, bones, a small humanoid skull. I like that he didn't tell them it was a goblin skull. You know, the description specifies as a goblin, but they may not know that right away. So it's a humanoid skull. They can at least tell that much. I do that too. And 19 silver pieces. Do you now fire the webs overhead? I like that leading question. He's trying to get them not to examine the skull. Like, yeah, I'll just suggest that they move along, right? That feels like a Gygaxian thing to do. Lead them into bad choices or, or suboptimal practice. Elsie, examine the skull first. What kind of humanoid was it? Can we tell? Now, this is cool. Calling it a humanoid skull instead of a goblin skulls. First of all, it's better because they like how would they know at first glance that it's for sure that it's a goblin skull? But also calling it human will make the players curious what kind of humanoid. And that will make them want to attack or, or examine it um further. On the other hand, he also tried to usher them past examining it. What kind of humanoid was it, can we tell? DM. Possibly a goblin. When you are looking at it more closely, you can see that there's a small gem inside, a garnet. So see, that was all it took to find the garnet. Just remember, have a look at that skull. LC, that's more like it. Yeah, forget those stupid silver pieces. That's barely 2 XP. Um, that's more like it. Put it safely in your pouch along with the silver pieces, good cleric, and light the spider web. Have you ever... Uh, have you ever referred to your fellow players as good cleric? DM. The strands burn quickly, flame running along each and lighting others touched. You see several young spiders crisped as the mass of webs near the top of the chamber catches fire. Elsie. That's that. What is seen down the corridors leading out of the, play, out of the place? A more passive voice in spoken language, which is not very natural. DM. The east passage appears to turn north after about 30 feet or so. The south tunnel runs straight as far as can be seen. Uh, this is because there's limits to things like infravision or even the light of a torch, so the passage is longer than those limits. And the west corridor ends in a door at about 20 feet. Elsie, come on, fellow adventurers, let's head west and see what lurks beyond the door. The other players concur, so marching order is re-established, and the gnome and halfling lead the way. DM. Okay, you're marching west, 10 feet, 20 feet. So there's that counting off of the uh, the distances that we saw all the way back in OD&D. And the passage ends in a door to the west. It is a great heavy thing bound in corroded bronze. There is a huge ring in the center. I don't remember that ring in the description. LC. Magic user, step forward and listen at the door. Gnome and halfling, see which way it opens and get ready to do so. Ah, that's good. My players are always asking me which way the door is going to open, left or right, open out or in, and I have to remember that or decide it if I didn't know it before. DM. Rolling a d6 behind a screen so that the players cannot see the result, which would normally indicate if noise were detected or not if applicable, when a character listens. In this case, the DM knows what will be heard, but pretends otherwise. There is a faint moaning sound. You can't really tell what it is, which rises and then fades away. The door pulls inward towards you, the hinges on the left. Elsie. Well, we all get ready. I'll knock an arrow, and the magic user will ready her magic missile spell. As soon as we are set, 
and Cleric and the gnome will pull the door open. The cleric closest to the hinged side. Ready? Go! DM. Each of you who are opening the door, roll a d6 for me to see if you succeed. I see from your character sheets that the gnome has a normal strength, so he'll need a 1 or a 2. The cleric has 17 strength. Awesome. Good for him. So he'll do it on a 1, 2, or 3. Eager hands roll the dice, and each succeeds in rolling a score low enough to indicate success. Smiling, the DM continues. The door groans inward, and a blast of cold, damp air gusts into the passage where you are, blowing out both torches. Here, as about three turns have elapsed, the DM rolls a d6 to see if a wandering monster appears. The resulting five indicates none. Um, luckily, there are only two trying to open the door. Um, but I believe the rules indicate that if three try to open the door and they all succeed, that they fall down from exerting so much force on it, um, which could possibly put them in a vulnerable position if a monster is on the other side of the door. LC, thinking quickly, halfling and gnome, what do you see with your infravision? Halflings have infravision in this version of the game? Because they don't in other ones. What do your halfling eyes see? We should, should we slam the door? DM, it takes a few seconds for their eyes to adjust to the darkness, and then they tell you that they can detect no creatures. Everything appears to be the same temperature. Cold. Because remember, infravision, you just see shades of gray for cold things getting to warmer, like yellow and orange and stuff like that. Um, if there's things that are hot, like living creatures. Cleric, it is time to use your light spell, for we'll never get torches lit in this wind. Cast it on your ten-foot pole. There is a delay while the cleric complies, and then, we are now poking the bright end of the pole into the place and looking. Tell us what we see. Good uh, how they figured out that they would just never get the torches lit in the wind. The DM didn't tell them the wind is still blowing. The space behind the door is only rough-hewn and irregular. It appears to be a natural cave of some sort, which has worked to make it larger in places. It's about 25 feet across and goes 40 feet south. A small stream, about 15 feet wide at one place, but only 6 or 7 wide, feet wide elsewhere, runs along the south, far, uh, south along the far wall. There are three buckets and several barrels in the place, but nothing else. LC, check the ceiling and the floor. No more nasty surprises for us. If we note nothing unusual, we will check out the buckets and barrels quickly, aside to the others. This is probably the water supply for the monastery, so I doubt if we'll find anything worthwhile here. Hmm, so they're looking for verisimilitude in their dungeon design. OC, where exactly is the wide spot in the stream? I think that I'll check out that pool. The DM tells the player where it is, so he heads over to the place. Now I'm looking into the water with the bright end of my staff, actually thrusting it into the liquid. What happens? DM. First, the others checking the containers find that they hold nothing but water or are totally empty, and that the wood is rotten to boot. You see a few white eyeless fish in various stone formations and a pool of water about four to six feet deep and about ten feet long. That's all. Do you wish to leave the place now? Once again, leading them into not examining further. Elsie. Yes, let's get out of here and go someplace where we can find something interesting. Other character. Wait! If those fish are just blind cave types, ignore them, but what about the stone formations? Are any of them notable? If so, I think we should check them out. Nah, see, this uh, time ushering them on almost worked this time. 
DM. Okay, the fish are fish, but there is one group of minerals in the deepest part of the pool which appears to resemble a skeleton, but it's simply... O.C., cutting him off. If the pool will, if the pole will reach, I'll use the end to prod the formation and see if it actually is a skeleton covered with mineral deposits from the water. I know the Shakespearean bit about a sea change. Um, cool. Your characters are well read. Or your players are well read. DM, you manage to reach the place and prodding it breaks off a rib-like piece. You see bone beneath the minerals. As you prod, however, a piece of the formation is caught by the current. A cylindrical piece about a foot long and it rolls downstream. LC, run as fast as you can to get ahead of it. Jump in and grab it. Quick, some of you get ready to pull me out of the water. Uh, I'll run as fast as I can to get ahead of it. Jump in and grab it. Quick, some of you get ready to pull me out of the water if it is over my head. DM, you manage to get ahead of the piece and jump into the water about four feet deep and grab it, but you must roll a d20 to hit to see if you can manage to grasp the object before it is swept past you and goes downstream into the pipe-like tunnel which the stream flows out through. The player rolls and scores high enough to have hit armor class 4, the value the DM has decided as appropriate to the chance of grasping, so the DM continues. You are in luck this adventure. You have the object and it seems to be an ivory or bone tube with a waterproof cap. LC. As soon as my fellows help me out of the stream, we'll examine it carefully. And it, if all appears okay, we'll dry it off thoroughly and open it very gently. DM. There is nothing difficult involved, so after drying it off, the gnome's cape, drying it off on the gnome's cape, you break the seal and pull out the stopper. Inside is a roll of vellum. I hope they know what vellum is. Lead character. Let's get out of here now, shut the door, and get some torches going again, and then read whatever is on the scroll. The others agree, and in a few moments, the actions have been taken care of. Now, carefully, remove the scroll and see what is on it. DM. The tube must have allowed a bit of water to seep in slowly, for there are parts of the scroll that are smudged and obliterated, but you can see it as a map of the passages under the monastery. You recognize the stairs down and the water supply room. It looks as if the eastern portion is smeared beyond recognition. But you see that the south passage runs to a blurred area, and beyond that you see a large area with coffin-like shapes drawn along the perimeter. That's all you can determine. We go back east 20 feet, which takes us back to the entry chamber, and then we'll head south down the long corridor there. We will look carefully at the map we found to see if it shows any traps or monsters along our route. DM. You are at the mouth of the passageway, south in the center of the south wall of the entry chamber. The map doesn't indicate any traps or monsters, so you go south down the passage. 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. 50 feet, 60 feet, 70 feet, 80 feet, 90 feet. The passageway is unremarkable, being of stone blocks and natural stone, <clears throat> with an arched ceiling about 15 feet high. At 90 feet, you come into the northern portion of a 50 foot by 50 foot chamber. It is bare and empty. There are no exits apparent. It seems to be a dead end place. Here the DM makes a check to see if any wandering monsters come, but the result is 2 on a d6, so there are none. What are you going to do? <clears throat> Before we move along, um, 
there are no exits apparent. That doesn't mean there are no exits. And I often find myself at a loss when this situation happens, when there are secret doors, but you don't want to tell them that there are secret doors. But it feels weird to say that there are no doors because there are, and that's a lie. So, but when you use a phrase like no exits apparent, unless you just use them all the time, whether there are secret doors or not, and I often forget when there are, to, to say it, when there are no secret doors, then you are kind of giving them a clue that, hey, there might be something here. Lead character. We'll look at our map again. Does this look as if it were the room with the coffin shapes? DM. Certainly not. The place seems to be about where the blotched area is, but there are no passageways out of it. Lead character. Let's tap along the south wall, especially in the center 30 feet, to see if it sounds hollow. The cleric, gnome, and halfling will do the tapping while the magic user and I walk, watch back the way we came. So, there's some people searching for a secret door, and during the same turn, there are some people keeping watch so that they don't get surprised. DM, rolling a few dice behind the screen several times, knowing that the tapping won't show anything as the secret door is 10 feet above the floor. So this is another one of those where you're pretending to check for stuff when there's nothing to check for, just like the, the noise in Area 2. Because they, they need to never know whether there's something there or not. And sometimes you will have to roll dice, so roll dice when you don't, that way they never really know. So, the entire wall sounds very solid. You spend a full ten minutes thoroughly checking, even to the far east and west, and all three are convinced that it is not hollow beyond. However, the gnome, whom you placed in the middle, noted some strange holes in the wall. These were square places cut into the natural stone, each about half a foot per side and a bit deeper. There were two at the twenty-foot and two at the 30-foot line, one above the other, lower at about three feet and higher at about six feet. He found some small splinters of wood in one. So there's all those details that are meant to clue them in that there's something else to be found above ground level. Other character. Does the smudged area give us any clue as to what the holes could be for? Let's feel around inside them to see if there are levers or catches or something. Lead character. Yes, look at the map and carefully check those holes with daggers first. We don't want to lose fingers or hands. That's good thinking. In round brackets it says, when all that comes to naught, because it does, can anyone think of why there would be wood splinters in the holes? That must be some sort of clue. So this uh, this example of play is hypothesizing some very thorough and thoughtful players who really are latching onto these details and wondering what they what they could indicate. Other character. The only thing I can think of is that the holes are sockets for some sort of wooden construction. Lead character. Sure. How about a ramp or stairs? How high is the ceiling in this place? DM. Oh, it must be at least 25 feet or more. Lead character. Let's form a human pyramid and see if there's a secret door higher up on the wall, right here in the center where the passage seems to go on southwards. I'll form the base and the rest of you help the gnome and halfling up and hold them there. Use the pole while they tap. What do they discover? 
there's no there's no rules for this they're just like sure you can form a whole human pyramid dm the halfling at the top of the stack has a one in six chance of slipping and bringing you all down ah there's the die roll a roll of four follows so but it doesn't happen and both mm -hmm. the gnome and the halfling manage a few taps and even that feeble work seems to, seems to indicate some sort of space beyond so they didn't roll for finding the secret door that seemed to be easy the trick of this secret door wasn't a die roll it was if you could figure out that the secret door is above ground level lead character let's change the plan a bit the cleric and i will hoist the gnome up and hold his legs firmly while he checks around for some way to open the secret door meanwhile the halfling and the magic user will guard the entrance so that we won't be attacked by surprise by some monster while thus engaged dm you accomplish the shuffle and let's see if anything comes round brackets a d6 roll for wandering monsters again gives a negative result uh this does happen quite a bit as i'm sure any of you who regularly roll wandering monsters on d6s you know it often doesn't happen the guards see nothing and what is the gnome doing now other character the gnome i'll scan the stone first to see if there are any marks or some operating device evident dm some stone projections seem rather smooth as if worn by use that's all you are able to note other character then i'll see if i can move any of the stone knobs and see if they operate a secret door i'll push twist turn slide or otherwise attempt to trigger the thing if possible dm the fifth fist size projection moves inwards and there is a grinding sound and a 10 foot by 10 foot section of the wall 10 feet above the floor in the center part swings inwards to the right other character the gnome i'll pull myself up into the passage revealed and then i'll see if i can drive in a spike and secure my rope to it so i can throw the free end down to the others dm you get up all right and there is a crack where you can pound in a spike as you're doing it you might be in for a nasty surprise so i'll let you roll a six-sider for me to see your status make the roll <clears throat> then in round brackets groans as a one comes up indicating surprise then the dm then rolls three attacks for the ghoul that grabbed at the busy gnome and one claw attack does two hit points of damage and paralyzes the hapless character whereupon the dm judges that the other three would would rend him to bits however the dm does not tell the players what has happened despite the impassioned pleas and urgent demands he simply relates you see a sickly gray arm strike the gnome as he's working on the spike the gnome utters a muffled cry and then a shadowy form drags him out of sight what what are you others going to do notice that he didn't roll all three attack rolls the first one hit and the paralysis took hold and so then the other two were automatic hits that's fair enough although i i must admit that's not how i've been doing the ghoul attacks i have been rolling them all and then you know yeah so if, so even if the paralysis takes effect i still make three attack rolls uh maybe i should try doing it this way lead character ready weapons and missiles the magic user her mis magic missile spell and watch the opening dm you hear some nasty rending noises and gobbling sounds but they end quickly now you see a group of gray colored 
human-like creatures with long dirt and blood-encrusted nails and teeth bloody and bared coming to the opening. As they come to the edge, you detect a charnel smell coming from them. Four of them, in fact. And that's the end of the example of play, at least in terms of the kind of stage directions and, and dialogue part of it. The final paragraph reads, What will the party do? Will the cleric realize that they are ghoul and attempt to turn them? Will he succeed? If not, there may well be no survivors. If so, what treasure lies beyond? Possibly the great gem uh, as part of the description of this um, dungeon that there is a great gem missing. Um, some very valuable gem. But the thief still awaits the party's return. Well, that is the stuff from which adventures are spun. And now you know how to spin your own. So interesting that last sentence indicates that this is definitely meant to be instructive, not not only the the map, the room descriptions, the specific content of how devious some of the stuff is, and yet also how easy some of it is. All you have to do to find the garnet in the goblin skull is look inside the goblin skull. All you really have to do to find the secret door is be at the right height, but figuring out that you need to get about 10 feet off the ground and search there is pretty tricky and requires not dice rolls, but characters being thoughtful and interacting with the details. So once again, not a lot of flowery description. There's a lot of business-like stuff. I, we still see the uh, counting off 10-foot sections of corridor and things like that, which I assume are still for the benefit of mappers so that the characters can get an accurate map. Because although they mention how you would do this if you were using a grid and miniature figures, um, that still may not be the case. You don't really have to use a grid and miniature figures to play AD&D, even though so much of combat actually depends on your precise position, as we talked about with the combat rules about when you can use your shield and things like that. So it, that is, and this will, I think, be the last time we get um, a an example of play written by Gary Gygax. Presumably the first one from OD&D was written by him. I'm not entirely sure who wrote the second one. It's possible that um, Holmes wrote it, and it's also possible that Gary Gygax wrote it when he uh, revised Holmes's work to turn it into the basic box. So at the end of the Holmes basic uh, issue or episode, I hypothesized that the AD&D um, example of play would have more examples of the complexity which sets AD&D apart from the, the continuum that is OD&D through to the basic family uh, of D&D editions. And I don't think that actually is the case. Um, the only example of combat is a gnome getting eaten by uh, a ghoul, which is one simple attack roll and paralysis. Um, and even the, the difficulties in finding the map and finding the, uh, the secret door and things like that were not resolved through game mechanics, but through the same kind of 
imaginative and creative play both on the part of the dungeon master the and designer and the players themselves so in that sense it still feels very much like uh basic or od and d it feels like it's pretty much the same game i think some of the rules minutia are very different as i pointed out in when i was talking about the history of ad and d and you know um generating a character is different there's no uh racist class um the way that characters work is slightly different the saving throws are slightly different and there's they have slightly different names the uh the bonuses you get for various ability scores aren't identical to the way they are in OD&D and all the basic D&Ds. But I think what we've seen is that despite how much more game mechanics there are in AD&D, the experience of playing the game is still very much the same. Um, and in that sense, I mean, I already believe that OD&D and all the basic D&Ds are all basically th- compatible with each other that apart from a few tweaks like armor class and things like that AD&D is probably broadly compatible with all of those um all of those additions um what was really different about this um this example of play was that it was linked to a sample dungeon and that instead of it just giving you a rough idea of how you might run a game, it actually gives you a blueprint for running that sample dungeon. And between those two elements, that's actually a pretty thorough introduction to the art of DMing. And that was very impressive. Um, And we do have a dead character now. Um, we didn't get a, de- a dead character in OD&D, but we, we definitely do have a dead character now. That gnome is dead. And as, uh, as the final paragraph mentioned, the party might also die. Um, we'll see if future examples of play remain as deadly. But uh, I was planning on moving ahead to... Uh, BX to the Moldvay basic example of play because that would be the next one chronologically. But instead, for the next time, I'm going to jump ahead all the way to 3.5 because 3.5 has a special surprise for us that I think uh, we would we would benefit from keeping the AD&D example of play firmly in mind. So we are going to jump ahead to 3.5 next time and then hopefully return to BX and then um, move on from there. So uh, that's all from me for this episode. Um, As always, roll more dice and listen to more goth music. Thanks for listening. I hope you like what you heard. I don't have a Patreon and I don't want your money. But please come again and tell a friend.